Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Another week ends with flags at half-mast throughout America. A vivid reminder of our national sickness about guns and the intense polarization that we face over issues that are no-brainers throughout the civilized world, such as whether 20-year-olds should be able to buy military-style assault weapons. Elsewhere, the signs of our broken political and cultural lives were rife. The January 6th committee investigating a series of schemes to subvert the peaceful transition of power and thus undo our democracy, succeeded in holding a marathon deposition with former White House counsel Pat Cipollone. The committee plans to hold two hearings this week, including, it hopes, one primetime event focusing on Trump's conduct minute by minute as the riot raged. A local prosecutor in Georgia, meanwhile, shows every intention of bringing criminal charges against Trump for subverting the election in the not-so-peach state. She subpoenaed a who's who of co-conspirators this week to testify before the special investigative grand jury that will issue a report and recommendation to her, a concrete indication of where this perhaps most dangerous investigation for Trump is headed. The fallout from the Supreme Court and especially the court's stunning and poorly reasoned opinion overruling Roe v. Wade continues unabated, and both parties are strategizing over the possibility that the court has unleashed a fury that will translate into improved fortunes for the Democrats in the midterms. To piece together these occasions of a fractured America, we are pleased to welcome three of the most thoughtful commentators in the country, and they are... Laura Coates, a CNN anchor and senior legal analyst, Sirius XM talk show host and author. She began her career in private practice, but then shifted to the Civil Rights Division, where she was a trial attorney. Her latest book, Just Pursuit, A Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness, is now available and excellent. Since 2017, she's hosted the daily talk show, The Laura Coates Show, where she discusses politics, law, and pop culture. Hmm, I've got an idea maybe for our Talking Five. Laura, welcome, as always, to Talking Feds. I'm so glad I'm here. Thank you. And the next two, Minnesota Twins. Nope, not Carew and Killebrew, and definitely not Berger and Blackman. Rather... Al Franken, who currently hosts the Al Franken podcast, one of the most popular and one of the few funny podcasts on politics in the country. He served as a United States senator, of course, from Minnesota from 2009 to 2018. Politics, of course, is his second career after his initial 15-year stint as a writer on SNL and continued to be a comedian and author. And today, in fact, tours the country with his uber-hilarious one-man show, which I had the pleasure of seeing here in San Diego. Thank you very much for being with us, Al Franken. I think you're going to have to give Norm a a very short intro. (laughs) Oh, but how do you know it's Norm, man? Isn't isn't that just great? So now everyone knows. Spoiler alert. It's not Byron Buxton, who everyone was waiting for. Not Byron Buxton, indeed. But Norm Ornstein, an emeritus scholar of the American Enterprise Institute, the co-host of AEI's Election Watch, a contributing editor for the National Journal, and a prolific author. He co-wrote the bestseller One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not-yet-deported. Norm Ornstein, thanks as always for returning to Talking Feds. Always a pleasure, Harry. All right, let's start with the January 6th committee, and in particular, the deal that they've made, which is going on now as we tape, a closed-door videotape deposition from former White House counsel Pat Cipollone. The committee's focused for weeks on getting his testimony. Vice Chair Cheney basically called him out in front of America. 
What makes him such an important witness and this such a important victory for the committee? Well, can we just say that, first of all, the fact that he clearly got his courage after Cassidy Hutchinson, because she's 26 years old, right? <laughs> right. Decided she's going to go up and she's actually going to testify and consequences be damned because that's what democracy does require and congressional investigations and transparency warrant. And then all of a sudden he seemed to have some epiphany of, oh, maybe the fact that my name has been talked about over and over and over again, I can't just get away with the idea of simply having hearsay of what I may have said. I actually have to face the committee and corroborate or deny it. But either way, you got to talk. And he also, there was sort of a test of history, I think, yeah. after Hutchinson. Okay, so that's right. But why did they want him? What's he going to bring to the party, as it were? And what are they hoping to get out of him? Well, he's the White House counsel. And he was in the room where an awful lot of these discussions took place in the Oval Office and around there. We also know what Cassidy Hutchinson said about him, that she was told by him directly, don't let Trump go up to the Hill or they will be charged with every crime imaginable. Effing crime imaginable, I think, yeah. Yeah. Now, there's something else involving him, though, and that is the pardons. We know that he was directly involved in all of the pardon applications and requests that came into Trump. And we now know many members of Congress who asked for pardons. So if he was a collaborator on some of these, he may have some culpability himself. And that may be one of the reasons he also wants to testify now to try and clear himself. If Lin-Manuel Miranda were to have scripted this, it's the scene of in the room where it happens, the room where it happens. And literally the room we're talking about is the dining room. He was with the president before, apparently during and after we're learning as well. And so what he may have said, what the water cooler moments took place, it was afterwards, what was happening, he'll be able to tell us. But the problem, of course, is what they're trying and concerned about is a lot of what happened with, say, a Don McGahn type of figure. The idea of White House counsel, if there is a strong argument where privilege might attach and apply and put a muzzle on you, of all the people in the world, it might be, obviously, Pat Cipollone who would have a stronger argument. The issue where it gets murky is, look, were there things he then said to other people? And of course, the person who owns that privilege is the actual president of the United States, not a former one, but the actual and the current president of the United States, President Joe Biden said, that privilege, you guys go ahead and talk. So will he really do it? That's the question for today. But I want to add a caveat to that, Laura, which is Trump himself has now put out there, Pat Cipollone was counsel for the United States. He was counsel to the president not counsel to the candidate. Right. And Trump was acting in these cases, not as a president, but as a candidate. So there are real questions about whether there's any privilege here in most of these conversations. Agree. Only Norm and I here aren't, aren't lawyers. But you're Minnesotans. Yeah. <laughs> you stayed at the Holiday Inn Express last night. Come on, yeah. bring it in. <laughs> well, I, I, I did play one in a sketch. And I have been watching these and loving every minute of them. I think they've done these brilliantly and they've exceeded my expectations, but nothing has shocked me. Mm. Nothing has shocked me. So if someone testifies the next hearing and says that, yeah, the president asked me to get research on gallows and nooses and... <laughs> Um, I wouldn't be surprised that the president ever dance a jig at any point. Yes, it was misreported that the crowd had caught up with uh, the vice president and torn him to pieces. And what did he sing when he was dancing the jig? So I don't know what he's going to say, but he's under oath and he's testifying and it's on videotape. But not even the statement from Cassie. I mean, if true, I know there was moments where people were questioning maybe the logistics and how it would work. But she testified that she heard from Tony Honorado, who was with the Secret Service, that the president tried to grab the steering wheel. There was a moment where there was some sort of tussle of yep. some kind. I was right. That that didn't even make you blink an eye. Oh, not at all. Yeah. Have you been watching Donald Trump? <laughs> 
Oh, my God. And with the other hand, he was chomping on a cheeseburger. That surprised you? <laughs> but he moved so much. No, no. I have to hold on to some semblance of shock. Otherwise, I've completely give, given up. And so the idea of if I'm not going to be surprised or at least phased by those moments that give me pause, then I don't have much faith left in the democracy. I know that all the norms have been busted. That, that is nothing, the alternative, indeed. Yeah, Nothing's behind the in-case-emergency-break-glass. <laughs> I did have questions about the logistics. I thought that there was always some sort of machine gun of sorts in the console area. So leaping over that would have been very difficult to do. I had questions. It, it was not the beast. It was the SUV. It's the SUV. Well, there you there you go. So they, then it maybe it shocked you that he wasn't in the beast, Al. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Rewinding back to Cipollone, I have a few trenchant comments to offer. So first, I think there will be those tussles, Norm. But hopefully they'll be short because he's more, I think, than a legal witness. He's a fact witness to things that happen where there's really no issue of his giving advice to the presidency, his real client, not to mention Trump. Remember the maybe the most incendiary, not that it shocked anyone who's sophisticated here, but the most incendiary (laughs) comment of going to Meadows and saying, call him off. No, you heard what he says, says Mark Meadows. Mm. He thinks they're right and they should hang pants. That is to Cipollone. Cipollone is also the guy who said, you're going to have blood on your hands to Meadows. He's the guy who's in the other room on the third when he says the Eastman memo is a murder-suicide pact. So all this stuff, He's a fact witness for, and if he'll just sort of reaffirm that, that's going to be a pretty important kind of thing. So, you know, it's behind closed doors, which he wanted, so there's not a sort of circus atmosphere, but he's got just quite a lot to say as a fact witness, sort of from soup to nuts in the whole thing. One thing we should add here is that this is not the final shoe to drop for this committee. Yeah. We know that the next hearing is about the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and their ties, probably through Roger Stone, but also in other ways to Donald Trump. Entirely possible they have some direct communications that Trump had with people encouraging or planning the violent riot. And we cannot forget that at that first debate in Cleveland, Trump said to the Proud Boys, stand by and stand up. So this connection perhaps could be one of the most damning ones. It was something else, a little bit different. Stand back and stand by. Yeah. Yeah. All right. A follow-up to everybody, but on Norm's point, because you're right. Well, we had this teaser. We know they're talking about the actual Proud Boys, et cetera, but at least Schiff said, we're going to talk about the mob on the mall and connections between the Trump White House and various extremist groups at the rally that preceded the attack. Wow. What kind of connections do they hope to show other than that comment, which to be fair, is less than a binding case in a court of law of an agreement? What, What else might we be looking at? Roger Stone. Yeah. Is it all sort of Stone Flynn kind of thing? Who did Hutchinson say was meeting at the Willard? Giuliani, Stone, Flynn, yeah. Uh, Flynn, (laughs) who had to take the fifth on whether he believed that we should have peaceful transitions in government. (laughs) What was incriminating? Was it, yes, I believe we should have peaceful? (laughs) No, I don't know which was incriminating. But anyway, (laughs) look, Roger Stone was being escorted by the Oath Keepers the day before and that day. The Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys met. We had that on videotape from the documentarian. Yeah. They met the day before. And they have now been charged with seditious conspiracy right. by the Justice Department. Exactly. Yeah. So if this ties back directly to Trump. And that would be through Stone, yeah? Yeah, with Stone, but he's a part of that conspiracy. The committee is going to have a second hearing on Thursday, another hearing in this coming yeah. week. And that, it's been widely reported, will be in prime time. I don't think you're going to get a primetime hearing unless there's something really big that's going to come out of that as well. Brace yourselves. We got a lot more. And that's going to be about Trump, we think, right? Is that the last one, do we think, Norm? <laughs> I, I don't know if it's the last one. Okay. No, we don't have any sign that this is the last hearing. Oh, my goodness, no. I, I just think this is going to go on and on. I, well, the, the important part, too, in terms of that link, 
what you said, Norm and Al, really, the idea of if they can tie this back to Trump, and that's going to be, I mean, from a prosecutor's perspective, you're, if you're thinking about not just what the legislative function is of the congressional committee, which is really the court of the electorate, so to speak, but if you're going to try to tie it to the president of the United States or anyone for that matter, based on a conspiracy element, you're talking about really the meeting of minds, the idea that I had to somehow be proactive and we had to meet those minds together. And so the way I think they're going to have to make this case, so to speak, is to go back to that documentarian evidence we heard earlier. And by the way, the fact that there have been two documentarians that have been part of this whole hearing, if there's a third one, I don't know what we're going to do about this. And the fact that there's all these cameras around, no one says, gee, maybe we shouldn't maybe commit crimes at some point in time. There's a camera watching you. But if you're able to, to bridge the gap between, remember that early witness who was um, in the videotape testimony, Donald Trump told me to do two things, told me to vote for him and told me to come down on the 6th. Well, that might sound very sensational to go, aha, listening to Donald Trump, but you have to bridge that gap in terms of what you heard. Was it intended to be taken a certain way? And if Cipollone if you know one of the Oath Keepers or Proud Boys are able to actually testify, videotape or otherwise, that they actually got their marching orders, not just an intimation like Michael Cohen spoke about, then that's a whole game changer that might happen that primetime slot. We might have some of it laid for foundation, though, on Tuesday. One other element here, just before we leave this topic. Let's keep in mind that the penalties for seditious conspiracy are huge. One of these Proud Boys or more, might very well decide to turn on Trump and cut a deal with the Justice Department. And if we have additional evidence coming out of these hearings, and that reinforces it, that makes an even more powerful case against Trump. Stand back and shut up. And you know who else might is Mark Meadows. Yeah. Cheney has talked about multiple referrals. And I thought this was the big game changer of Hutchinson, because when we have Trump actually trying to foment violence, that's what puts him into seditious conspiracy yeah. land. It feels as if something changed post-Hutchinson testimony, and there's a number of establishment Republicans acknowledging that there's a there there. So let's close out for now on this. Will more blockbuster information actually suffice to remove Trump's grip from the Republican Party? Or will that only happen? Can that only happen if the Department of Justice indicts? I don't know if it even happens if the Department of Justice indicts. You, so you're not impressed? You've had several of these articles of like, I didn't believe it, but now I do. Who are they? Because... Uh... Well, here's, I mean, here's what we can say. We know that Asa Hutchinson, the governor of Arkansas, not exactly a state that is soft on Trump, hates him, these are people who are Trumpists. He came out against Trump, basically saying he's responsible for January 6th. We had the National Review, the Washington Examiner. What's happening, I think, is that some of these people, not because they've had a moral awakening or a come to Jesus moment, but because they're seeing that Trump could be an albatross around their necks, are trying to get a little distance from him. That doesn't mean, as Al suggested, that the public will. If this involves a deep breach in the Republican Party between those who pragmatically want to get Trump off to the side and those who are with him forever, bring it on. That would be absolutely wonderful, especially if it happens in September and October. Well, let's not forget, it's not necessarily about those who want to assign blame to Trump. That happened very early on by established Republicans, including the Kevin McCarthy's, including the Mitch McConnell's, even in the impeachment trial at the end. The question is whether it has staying power and whether they are willing to stay the course on those issues. Secondly, look at what's happened over in the UK. I mean, the threshold apparently for Prime Minister Boris Johnson to resign I think it's arguably a lower threshold than what we've already surpassed here in the States. And I think they talk about the way in which people have viewed their ability to compartmentalize and their ability to, at least when it comes to what a president might be able to do, a la Supreme Court nominations, a la the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the like. I think people have a higher level of tolerance for foolishness, as long as in the end, they'll get what they want. And for Republicans, that might very well be a return to the majority. And if that's enough to get them there, I don't know whether this hearing will have that exact effect 
a changing minds. Really, the whole thing over in England seems like less than the Access Hollywood tape. All right. So there's an end for now. Big week coming up, not just a two hearing week, but one that, as you say, Norm, on Thursday, I think is going to be pretty big as Trump. And they've managed. I agree with Al. I've been you know, continually impressed and re-impressed, if that's a word. I don't think it really is. Make it a word. It's a word now, Harry. Yeah, it's, it's your a, podcast. It's, <laughs> they actually keep not just doing well, but each act seems a little bit more compelling and exciting than before. So that's quite a record to try to live up to, but next week could be pretty incandescent. All right, let's move now to the other big anti-Trump development of the week. And by the way, I just want to at least say and give anyone a chance to say, there's not all that much to say because we've seen it so much, but the Highland Park massacre, which dominated emotions as well as news, we're not covering it, but not because it's not important and stomach-turning and heartbreaking and the like, but just because it's getting so terribly old in the worst way. Well, you know, because we need a militia, yeah, uh, we right. need these yeah. guns. I will say on that, we we're talking about the January 6th hearings, and those are obviously very important. But Congress is also asked now for gun manufacturers to appear and testify on the Hill to have some other alternative method of talking about accountability, knowing that legislation has already been secured and signed, sealed, delivered, and has not been the deterrent that we've all been looking for. I wonder if the next hearings of extraordinary consequence will be able to change some things because people ought to be able to walk down the street, walk into a store, walk in a parade, sit in a parade. An eight-year-old little boy ought not to be paralyzed from the waist down because he wanted to celebrate the United States of America with his family. And maybe these hearings will be an opportunity to change things, even though people are very pessimistic about having new legislation now that some has already been secured. You know this better than anyone, Senator Franken, about this notion and how this will work. But maybe this is a different way to approach it that might be meaningful and helpful. And speaking of different ways, did you see what New York's idea now, I'm sure it's going to be challenged, is when you apply for a gun, we want to see your social media. Oh, really? You know, you're always like, as soon as the shooting happens, it's like, oh, shit, as soon as they catch him, what's the social media going to say? And they're saying, we'll see it before. This is a detour, but a worthwhile one. So, Norm. This is a message to the leaders and members of Congress following on what Laura said. You not only have to hold a hearing with gun manufacturers. I want a hearing with that 10-year-old girl who could not get an abortion after being raped in Ohio and had to travel to, of all places, Indiana. This is a time now for Congress to focus on the outrages of what the Supreme Court has done. Bring in some of these physicians who are telling you a wonderful piece by Ron Brownstein today. Maternal deaths are likely to go up by double digits, especially in those southern states that have no protection, no health care for women. This is pro-life. This is a time for Congress to step up, not just with this January 6th committee. This has been a model the way the committee has operated. Let other committees step up and do some of this stuff. And how about a hearing finally on Clarence Thomas and Ginny Thomas and the lack of any ethics code in the Supreme Court? How about having justices who pray with an ultra-right religious group and then the court rules on a case that involves them. How about something like that? I'd like to, Harry, apologize on behalf of Norm for derailing everything and bringing up <laughs> these unbelievably horrible, important things. No, I'm going to go with it. I wanted to talk about this anyway. We will return to Georgia, but let's go with Norm is so passionate. We just can't let it fall. The fires ignited by the court's Dobbs decision are not dying down, and I did want to talk about that. Yes, hearings, yes, fact-gathering, but Congress does have a few options pending. Is any of them at all promising, any of them at all likely? This is why Democrats have to not carp about Democrats and get out and win, because you can't get anything done without two more votes in the Senate and addressing the filibuster. And so we have to win these elections. And yeah, after the Senate, Democrats put up the bill to codify the right to abortion and it went down, 49-51. I said, let's just put one out 
codifying the right to contraception. Make Republicans vote on this stuff. What this is going to do to women, and okay, the coach, the coach who went to the 50-yard line and prayed, and Gorsuch said he did it in private, and Sotomayor put out in her dissent pictures of it, and he was mobbed. This court is, first of all, it's illegitimate, and secondly, it's disgusting. Alito, there was no reference at all to the 14th Amendment. There is no reference at all to the debates about the 14th Amendment and the right to autonomy and the unenumerated rights that Casey and Roe were compromises. Alito, this was even worse than the leaked opinion. And I had Dahlia Lithwick on today. She said that basically the court is saying that privacy rights belong to a football coach praying in the middle of a field, but not to a woman alone who a second ago conceived. Think about that. I'd love to hear your thoughts as to why you call the court illegitimate. I'm assuming it's because of the way in which Merrick Garland was denied a hearing and Mitch McConnell's ability to um, put his thumb on the scale and what happened next. But, you know, just think about this. Not too long ago, you talk about the intersection of gun violence and violence in this country and Roe v. Wade, for example. The court really wants, and, and Congress was hoping to secure the protection of the members of the Supreme Court because they don't think that anybody's choices, albeit intellectual legal opinions, but choices to be controlled by anyone else. They want to be able in a place like Texas to have say over whether a vaccine enters their body because that's about one's choice and their medical decisions. But when it comes to the agency and autonomy of a woman over her choices, over her wants and over the balancing test that we have seen. In law school, we learn about this balancing test, the idea of your rights end where mine begin and the states can take over versus the personal. That's really kind of gone now. The idea in Dobbs is the real crux of the matter, although they want to say that's not gone, but the real crux of the matter is as long as history never contemplated this, or as long as history had a say, then the status quo should forever be maintained. Now, think about all the other areas where history had its say, and society said that history was wrong. This is an open wound, but it's also an open invitation for states that not only to ignore precedent of the Supreme Court, for states to decide that the Supreme Court's rulings either shouldn't matter, as Texas did last summer, or for the court to decide, you know what, we're going to apply one logic here and forget about same-sex marriage or interracial marriage or same-sex relationships and relations. Forget about those. We don't mean those, but the logic would be the same. And it's just stunning time and time again to see how fragile these rights are. I mean, I woke up that morning when Dobbs came out with a certain set of rights. I went to bed that night with less rights than my mother, my grandmother, and my great-grandmother had. And I'm a black woman in America. I went to with less rights than prior two generations had, all because someone said, you know what? History really had this issue pegged differently. So forget it. That's stunning. But there's one thing that we need to add to that, Laura, which is that today, the two major historical associations in the United States, including the American Historical Association, condemned the Dobbs decision for utterly Mm. misusing and distorting history. Sam Alito is a scoundrel, and no opinion by Alito can be taken at face value because he misuses data and turns it to whatever ideological viewpoint he wants. And of course, it's not just him, because five others signed on to that. That makes them illegitimate as well. All right, so pretty fiery rhetoric about the court, and I share it. My question is, we're always assuming if the filibuster breaks, if the filibuster breaks. But what would have seemed inconceivable just a few years ago, which is actual court reform, increasing Supreme Court by some justices, you have a lot of voices wanting that. Is there even the most remote chance, even if you posit a couple gains in the Senate, might we see a legislative response directed toward the court itself? Only if there are more Democrats. I had Congressman Sheila Jackson Lee on my Serious Action show the other day, and she pointed to the idea of increasing the number of Supreme Court justices based on, in part, what you both were speaking about, 
the perceived illegitimacy of the court. The idea of public opinion and public trust now not believing that the Supreme Court is as apolitical as it's supposed to be. The idea that the process to confirm, obviously, is very political. But now people are viewing the court with an increasing level of trepidation and mistrust that they really are not a political extension of the executive branch. We know that elections matter. And for that reason, some of the ways people are talking about these issues now is to perhaps expand the court and maybe impose term limits on the court so that there can be the transition of power. And I think about how this very argument haunted in some respects, politically, now president, but then candidate Joe Biden, when he had to have the commission for the Supreme Court to sort of kick the can down the road about what is pejoratively called this court packing scheme. And I'm thinking that's rearing its head again, because people are wondering what you know, Norm and Al are talking about. If it is illegitimate, how do you counteract it? Is it more justices? Is it a term limit? Is it the expectation of turnovers? They're not as powerful. What is it? You know, I've been a long time proponent of term limits on the court, but that takes place over a long period of time. There's a logic to making the court 13, which is that it was set at nine when there were nine circuits. So you could make it 13 now that there are 13 circuits. But there's another way to do this as well, and that is to change the jurisdiction of the court. The court has very limited original jurisdiction. And then there's appellate jurisdiction, but Congress can set what the jurisdiction is of lower courts as well. If this continues, and especially as we get to the independent state legislature's theory, if there is a direct challenge there, cut their jurisdiction back. You can take away their jurisdiction and the jurisdiction of appellate courts on uh, elections and voting. You know, if you use the logic of the independent state legislature's doctrine, Congress has the authority over the time, manner, and place of federal elections. So there are a number of ways in which you could get at this, except that getting back to where we started, you're not going to do it unless you have probably more than 52 Democrats in the Senate. And just as you've had the term pro-life hijacked, the term court packing has been hijacked. Mitch McConnell did the court packing. Enlarging the court would be restoring the court, not packing the court. I got to say, the two non-lawyers here have both raised really interesting, important, and legally complicated topics. Kudos to you. And But Al, I know you wanted to jump in on the specific case and harbinger of disaster that it might be, the independent state legislator doctrine. Well, I don't know where this doctrine came from, <laughs> and it seems completely illegitimate, but four of the justices chose to take it. And this is fascism. The Republicans control 30 state legislatures. What this doctrine says is that the state legislatures have complete control over elections and that they can pretty much do whatever they want and appoint the electors they want. So if a year from now, when we talk about that term in the Supreme Court, we could have a situation where it would be impossible, virtually impossible for a Democrat to be elected president in 24. And that is taking us down a road that is just, it's fascism. Well, I mean, I want to just be clear too. When we talk about this independent state legislature theory, the idea that the Supreme Court is willing to take up a case out of North Carolina that has already dealt with its more than fair share of racial gerrymandering, then partisan gerrymandering, and then racial and then partisan gerrymandering yet again. This is the same state, I believe, where the court had said a appellate judge that this was with surgical precision that they attempted to engage in voter dilution and voter infringement. Targeted African-Americans with almost surgical precision. Exactly. And so the idea that the court is willing to entertain this theory that it's more than just the state legislature would have the ability to control, it's that they would remove the state court's ability to act as a check and balance against what's being done, which I know we can all remember civics quite well enough to know that we're supposed to have checks and balances. So if the Supreme Court of the United States in any way thinks it's a valuable and additive portion to our democracy to remove the ability of a state court 
to have the final say over what might be unconstitutional or what might be illegal of what legitimate do, we're taking away the checks and balances system. And of course, it impacts voting and democracy in the end. So I'm really curious as to why this court would want to entertain anything that would dilute the power of its own branch, albeit a lower court. But it's not diluting their power. And we're talking not just about state legislatures, but about these completely gerrymandered state legislatures and a court that's already pretty much destroyed the Voting Rights Act. You know, there's one other thing that we could mention here, which is the North Carolina case. Actually, this was a violation of the state constitution as well. So if this court basically says what the state legislature did is fine because the constitution says that they have absolute power, it is basically flying in the face of everything, including the fact that the states have constitutions and it's the states in their constitutions that have set up the state legislatures in the first place. It would be a completely lawless act. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to put on my uh, law nerd con law hat for a second. Quick comments on both those things. So yes, we call it as doctrine until a few weeks ago, really, it's a fantasy. But mm. the basic idea is that the federal constitution somehow, and, and one of the other conservative principles, it completely runs roughshod over as federalism, somehow dictates that state legislatures have final authority even over the voters. It's a sort of law school, water cooler fantasy by conservative students all of a sudden now has the dignity of Supreme Court review. And once they take a case, God knows what four or five of them might say. So that's the point number one. And then just on Norm's point, it's like really third year law school head spinning stuff. And there have been efforts, but it's a very sort of irresistible force meets a movable object kind of doctrine where Congress can say, hey, guess what, Supreme Court? You don't get to do any cases about abortion. You don't get to do any cases about military, et cetera. And so the power is quite clear and it hasn't been exercised. They've always sort of stepped back from the brink, but it could really happen here. That would be quite a solution. All right. I'll exit question here that's more political. As Al says, as all three of you have said, this sort of begins and ends with elections, and maybe you need to make this at all plausible to be up to, say, 52. But in terms of the coming midterms, then, do the Dems have to be seen as trying to do something now legislatively to get pro-choice voters to turn out for them in big numbers? Or is the decision itself, the Dobbs decision, enough to get pro-choice voters to the polls and be the transforming factor. I should add Biden to the mix because yeah. he's being criticized for not being uh, forceful enough here. He did some things today, and there are some limits to what you can do by executive action. But I would say it's not the Dobbs decision alone. We're not going to see anything significant in the legislative arena, and at least in Congress. It's the actions in the states. We are seeing states move to unbelievable extremes. I mean, even if you go back before Roe, the idea that you'd have states that would basically say incest, rape, even life of the mother, too bad, you're going to have to suffer, that you would potentially criminalize people for having miscarriages, that we're seeing things like a 10-year-old child violently raped, not being able to get an abortion, all of those things as they take place in states. I think we're going to see that play out and have an impact on voters. And it's two groups of voters. It's Democrats who need to be energized that this is an existential moment. And it's these suburban college-educated voters who've often voted Republican in the past who may now see this as a clear and present threat to their well-being. I think this is a huge issue as it plays out. I think voters in general, if what motivated people to compartmentalize or to vote in favor of a particular candidate was the prospect of overturning Roe v. Wade. Now that that has been done, there are always concerns about whether there will still be that appetite and the ability to, to stand by a particular candidate. But I think people have to be more broad in the approach of how it's messaged overall. And that is, you have to vote as if it will one day knock on your door. You have to vote as in this particular issue might not impact me personally. But 
If I believe in a government who ought not to be able to knock on my door at any point in time and indiscriminately take away rights and upend longstanding precedent and tell me that I no longer have the same privileges that others have, if I believe that conceptually, then I have to vote in a way that demonstrates my belief. And so that can be anything from abortion to voting to issues surrounding any number of things. But I think if people are looking at it singularly and in a way that is almost myopic on the singular issue of Roe v. Wade, I think that there are going to be some difficulties at the polls. But I hope people view what's happening here in that very broad way of what we heard. It's a republic if you can keep it. How you lose it is when you start to think, I only vote when it matters to me personally. You know, this is a choice when you go in the polls. And I'm not talking just about voting. I'm talking about calling people up and telling them to vote <laughs> instead of just watching the Prevagen commercial on MSNBC or CNN. <laughs> maybe during that time, you can go like, you know what, maybe I'll call somebody and urge them to vote. I can get a list from the Democratic Party. And, you know, it's all nice to hear a guy say, well, you know, I'm 73 years old. And uh, since I started taking Prevagen, I remembered how boring I am. <laughs> you know, do something out there. Big tent party. Boring people are fine. Boring voters are fine. <laughs> I'm laughing at his impersonation. I'm laughing at his impersonation. <laughs> Those of you who are listening to this podcast friggin' work from now until November. That's the friggin' message. Don't wring your hands about, you know, what did Biden do? You know, has he been strong enough? Oh, his, you know, his ligaments seem stiff. He must be getting <laughs> old. Come on, everybody. Is this enough? Is this enough what they've done? I think he took a double dose of Prevagen today. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Might have a title here. Is this enough? I mean, it really. No, okay. no. The title is, I think his ligaments look stiff. That is, that is the book, <laughs> the essay, the anthology. That's everything. Isn't it? Oh, I don't like the way he walks. He looks old. Yeah. Fuck, you know, <laughs> fuck you. That's my response. That's also a title. That's the one you go with. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, It's time now for our sidebar feature. Today, we discuss the Presidential Records Act, the statute that makes all White House records the product of the American people, and that President Trump may well have violated, perhaps even criminally, when he removed all manner of papers and keepsakes to Mar-a-Lago as he left the White House at the end of his presidency. And to explain the Presidential Records Act, we are really pleased to welcome Joe Iconis, an award-winning composer who's known for combining indie rock energy and musical theater tunefulness on breakout shows including Love in Hate Nation, Broadway Bounty Hunter, and the Tony-nominated Be More Chill. His music appeared on season two of Smash with his song Broadway, Here I Come, which was hailed by the New York Times as a new entry in the Great American Songbook. So I give you Joe Iconis explaining the Presidential Records Act. The Presidential Records Act sets out requirements for the treatment of official records of presidents and vice presidents. Congress passed it in the wake of Watergate when President Nixon tried to keep many of his documents private. The law makes the American public the legal owners of official records of the president. Official records means any record, whether paper or electronic, in the president's office relating to her official duties. Second, the law requires the president and her staff to preserve records while she is in office, after which the records transfer to the legal custody of the National Archives and Records Administration. Thereafter, the records stay non-public for five years, at which point they become subject to Freedom of Information Act requests with significant restrictions that the former president can invoke for up to 12 years. The act establishes procedures for Congress, the courts, 
and later administration to obtain access to presidential records that have not been made public, subject to an executive privilege review. The act is basically an honor system. It doesn't set out any penalties for its violations. However, there is a separate federal statute, 18 U.S.C. 2071, that provides up to three years in prison for anyone who will willfully and unlawfully mutilates or destroys government records and disqualifies anyone convicted under it from holding any federal office. In 1989, a D.C. court held that this statute applied to charges against Reagan officials for conspiring to destroy National Security Council documents in Oliver North's possession. It said that the obvious purpose of the statute is to prohibit the impairment of sensitive government documents by those officials who have access to and control over them. However, willfully is a very high standard. It means that the defendant had a specific intent to do the very harm that the law forbids. Turning to former President Trump, there are widespread eyewitness reports that he routinely and repeatedly ripped up presidential records, even after being told he had to preserve them. Many of the records turned over to the archives had been taped back together. Some had been ripped just once, others looked like reconstructed confetti. Maggie Haberman reported that White House staff repeatedly found the toilets clogged with printed paper and believed that Trump had flushed records to destroy them. And the administration also removed 15 boxes of documents and brought them down to Mar-a-Lago in violation of the law. These included individual documents of historical value, including the letter left for Trump by President Barack Obama and the map of Hurricane Dorian that Trump altered with a black marker to try to show he had been right about the storm's path. On February 9th, the National Archives and Records Administration asked the Justice Department to investigate Trump's handling of White House records. The department doesn't have to agree to investigate, but if it does, it could do anything from issue a report to bring in charges under 18 U.S.C. 2071B. For Talking Feds, I'm Joe Iconis. Thank you very much to Joe Iconis. Catch his new project, the aptly titled Album, a massive work of 44 songs that includes collaborations with Lin-Manuel Miranda, Andrew Rannells, and more. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. Today's spirited debate asks, to decant or not to decant? That is the question. And the short answer is yes. But when should you decant? First off, what is it? Decanting is the process of slowly pouring liquid, in this case wine, from one container to another without disturbing the sediment at the bottom. It is important to separate the wine from the sediment if there is a lot of it because the sediment can dampen the aromas and flavors in your glass. Decanting wine also helps the wine to aerate which is the process of introducing oxygen to the liquid. No doubt you've heard or even said the phrase, let the wine breathe. Well, that's what decanting does best, allowing those aromas to expand while making the wine more flavorful and balanced. And it's never a bad idea to decant a young, bold wine. In fact, at Total Wine & More, our guides recommend allowing an hour or two for the process to work best. This is not advisable for mature wines that just need to be separated from their sediment. Leaving a mature wine in a decanter for too long could cause flavors to become muted from too much aeration. Not only young reds and whites can benefit from decanting. Despite some controversies over the practice, decanting some sparkling wines like Maillie Brut Champagne can expand their flavors. Remember to taste your wine while decanting to be sure it is not left aerating for too long. And don't forget, the younger and more closed the flavors are when you open the wine, the more it will benefit from the decanting process. Even a few seconds of aeration or a quick swirl in your glass will do wonders to your favorite wine from Total Wine & More. However, the best rule of thumb is, whenever you can, decant. Taste and enjoy when it feels best to you. It's personal. Cheers. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. We just have a few minutes to return to Georgia, which I'd like to. 
Back to Fannie Willis, seven subpoenas spanning conduct from shortly after the election to January 6th. Thoughts about what this tells you about her investigation, how dangerous for Trump, timing, et cetera. Any reactions to the midweek news? You know, I um, represented the people of Minnesota, and I never called the Secretary of State of Wisconsin. (laughs) (laughs) Enough said. She is moving much more rapidly and in a pointed way than the Justice Department, obviously. It seems to me to be clear-cut Georgia law that this was an attempt to interfere with an election and especially focused on Fulton County. When you've convened a grand jury and now you're calling critical witnesses, including Lindsey Graham, and his defense for not coming is an entirely flawed one that he was doing this. He called because he was chair of the Judiciary Committee. You don't call to try and overturn votes because you're chair of the Judiciary Committee. And even if you do, it's not a reason not to testify. Come and tell them that if you want to. Not a reason not to testify. And if we're true justice, he might be charged as well. But I think this is moving right up the chain. And if we're going to get a prosecution, it's much more likely to come first from Georgia before it comes from the Justice Department. I just want to remind people, though, when you're talking about the grand jury, this is the special grand jury. Most grand juries are going to be asked to return an indictment. This special grand jury's role is to return a report. And then we'll hand over Fannie Willis again, the DA in Fulton County, who will then decide whether to put it in front of a grand jury in the traditional sense and ask for that returned indictment. But you're right, they are moving quite along in the subpoenas and who they're going at. I'm always interested about who was not subpoenaed and all the people in that inner circle, the person who was not with Donald Trump. And we know traditionally, if you don't subpoena the target of your investigation, because you run up against sort of Fifth Amendment concerns and other issues about the person handing over information and incriminating themselves. So I'm curious as to who's not on the list, but I'll be most intrigued by how quickly they impanel the traditional grand jury after this is done. Yeah. The special grand jury meets for a year, but she says she wants to go much faster than that. I think there's no doubt she's going right at him like a freight train. I just want to temper it by saying there'll be skirmishes. I think the witnesses will lose, but there'll be skirmishes trying not to show up. And when they do, there'll be Fifth Amendment stuff. And there's interesting issues about a state indicting a former president. So I think she's going with all dispatch and she's going straight to Trump. That doesn't mean it'll happen next week, which is when the subpoenas are returned for. I'd like to ask a question of of Harry and Laura. They have him on tape shaking down the Secretary of State to find him 11,780 votes, and then he threatens him. You're going to get in trouble. You know, you'll be in trouble if you don't do this. You can- That's a crime. It's on tape. <laughs> All during the January 6th thing, feeling like, yeah, but can they indict him? But can they indict him? Can they indict him? That's a crime. If she prosecutes him, In Georgia, it's a federal election. It's a federal crime. Why can't Merrick Garland, couldn't they have indicted him when that tape came out? I don't get it. That is the big question many are asking more broadly about Attorney General Merrick Garland. To what extent he is invested in being able to pursue these crimes at the state level. But again, because this very notion we're talking about, the idea of time, place, and manner, and these are state laws that have also been implicated, it doesn't preclude the states from being able to pursue it. And politically speaking, there is some perhaps methodology or a rhyme or reason. I mean, if you're talking about a state crime, Then the president of the United States can't even entertain the type of pardons that, say, a Gerald Ford spoke about in the past as a way to unify the nation and try to undermine people's belief that he's engaged in a partisan witch hunt against the person he beat out last time. So I think there is probably a balancing act that's at play between wanting to respect the process at the state level. And also, might it not be cleaner for, say, a President Biden that his hands are sort of tied and, hey, I... I can't do anything about it. Had it been a federal crime, maybe my issue would have been different. But the fact that it's state precludes him from having to have the level of red dye on his hands. Like almost everything, as many critics have decried, it's a potential federal crime. And the reason they didn't bring it at the moment that the tape came out is 
are the reason they're not bringing it now. You don't just jump ahead to the former course, president. They're proceeding methodically. <laughs> but an important point to add is it's actually a cleaner fit for Georgia. It's really Georgia and Georgia's election apparatus that were most injured. And the solicitation of election fraud is a pretty clean crime in Georgia, whereas the crime involved at the federal level more has to do with, it's related, but more has to do with the impairment of the actual congressional meeting on January 6th. So even that conduct in Georgia, if it gets folded into a federal crime, will be having to do with the trying to impair the actual federal proceeding, the January 6th one, rather than simply a fraud somewhere that that hurts a state, even though you can make a fraud federal crime out of almost anything. But it's a cleaner prosecution for Georgia. Thank you for that. Laura raised an interesting issue, which is a state crime, you can't have a federal pardon. But of course, you could have a state pardon. I would assume in Georgia, as in most states, the governor has the ability to pardon state crimes. Totally. It would be interesting to see. And that may make this Georgia election for governor between Kemp and Stacey Abrams even more significant. Because even though Trump tried to derail Kemp and has trashed him repeatedly, if Kemp is reelected, the pressure on him to pardon Trump if Trump is convicted would be significant as well. So we're going to see a lot of twists here. Yeah. And one more thing. First, we'll see a lot of twists, meaning even if he's convicted, he probably doesn't go to jail for years and who knows if he's alive. (laughs) But there's a non-trivial issue of whether a state can indict even a former president. Imagine that precedent yeah. and imagine, you know, soon as Biden's finished, they, Texas grin, et cetera. So that's going to play out in, in serious ways. So the one point is, yeah, she's going right at him. But the other side is it's not straightforward that it eventuates in pinstripes. All right, we have one minute left for our final feature of Talking Five, where we field a question and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. And today, in honor of the Minnesota Twins element, we've got a Minnesota-centric question, which is simply, Prince or Dylan? Five words or fewer, please. I like both very much. Spoken like a former politician. politician. (laughs) And here's here's my response to Al Franken. That is a (laughs) cop-out. Yes, it is. <laughs> of course, it's got to be Prince. You guys kidding me? That's what happens when the doves cry. It's only one answer. If Prince were Jewish, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I am love Prince, but come on, Dylan. <laughs> we are out of time. Thank you very much to Laura, Al, and Norm. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we'll be posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. We're available on the Spectrum News app, which provides local stories, weather, and information that matter to you and your community. Download the Spectrum News app on your Apple or Android device. You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. Most recently, we posted a conversation with Bianca Vivian Brooks about the reactions and personal experiences of younger women in Gen X and millennials to the overruling of Roe versus Wade in the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com. Whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. 
Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers, and Adam Macias is our consulting producer. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Thanks very much to Joe Iconis for explaining the Presidential Records Act. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. Thank you.